Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have a return guest, my compatriot, pal, and sparring partner, Paul Lloyd, who is the founder of a company called Sellerly. He's got a great background in the channel and in sales for, what, 35 years or thereabouts? Yeah, or thereabouts, yeah. So the pair of us are gnarly and grumpy. And today, we're going to talk about why people completely cock up their accounts, their market, their prospecting. So, Paul, the soapbox is yours. Let, let's kick off with what is it when you when you look at vendor organizations, what is it that really pisses you off about the thinking that management and leadership have about their approach to go to market? I think vendors, vendors in the channel, it's all about volume. So the basic sort of premise is. If we get 300 resellers and they all sell one, we'll have sold 300. Mm. And then there's this strange notion that if you go to market and you give them some inquiries so they get their first orders, then they're suddenly going to think that's a great idea and pick your product up and make it strategic. And I think that sort of scattergun approach is just a nonsense. You need a more targeted, more focused approach if you want to win new business. Absolutely. And I have to say, agree with you 100%. I see so many people pilot high, sell it cheap. What they forget is the cost of customer acquisition, the cost of partner acquisition, the cost of wasted leads. I'm talking to companies where they have between half a percent and 6% conversion rate. And they, they think that's acceptable. Um, mm. When you think about the inherent waste there, uh, it's not only the amount of money that you've blown on trying to get that business through the door. But it's all those people who will never do business with you because you've just been a noisy, irritating interruption that's unwelcome. And you've got partners who will go cold on you and you know, they, they might do one deal, but that's it. And you've just spent a whole load of money trying to recruit them, onboard them, train them, provision them on your PRM system and everything else. So let's cut to the chase. What, what's your recommendation? If you're speaking to sales leaders, what are you recommending that they do instead? Obviously, there needs to be some context. So when I started all those years ago, I was in enterprise. And the basic premise, the company I worked for, we sold to the Times Top 1000 companies. That's our target market. And we had a number of salespeople and we carved up that thousand amongst those salespeople. So we didn't have a geography. We had a list of named target accounts. We knew that they were big enough. We knew they were in the market. We knew that they bought, essentially bought what we sold. And there was requirements. And our job was to go out and win those accounts. Now, in those days, you couldn't do that with the SME space because you couldn't find out, simplistically. <laughs> Whereas you'd have spent hours and hours and hours researching small businesses. Whereas today... I can find out more or less anything about a business in 15 minutes. Now, when I go out and see somebody, I profile it from LinkedIn, Google search, a bit of business information so that when I actually sit down and talk to somebody, in some cases, I know more about their business than they do. The whole premise is that I have my territory is that list of target accounts that the company I'm working for wants to do business with. And my job is to go out and do it. I was listening to a really interesting webinar that Jay McBain was speaking at yesterday. And uh, he was making the point that 
the whole buying process is being digitized. It's being automated to a large extent. And in fact, Gartner's uh, study that was released in October 2020 says that 33% of buyers want a seller-free buying experience. And they're savvy. They've got the sum total of human knowledge with a few strokes of the keyboard and a few clicks of the mouse. And if we're going to be relevant, we have to change our behavior and change our approach. So if I look back at your early days, when you were working those your patch within uh, your thousand accounts. How much knowledge and uh, research did you put into the individuals within your target accounts? Individuals was difficult because at the time there were a name in a book. But I mean, we would look at their accounts, we'd look at their market, they'd look at their competition. We'd do, there used to be a thing called a computer user's yearbook, which I don't I remember think- that. Uh, well, I don't think you can get it anymore. I have, I have looked because I, I want you to get a copy to hold up when I'm doing when I'm speaking. You know, this is what I had to use type of thing, but I can't get hold of a copy. But the computer users yearbook used to tell you what they used. So were they DEC? Were they IBM? Whatever. And so you'd put all of that together, and then you'd have to go and see them. So you've then got to get in to see them, and you know whatever the tactics and the strategy is that you use to do that. And today, as I say, I mean, you know, it would take hours back then. Today, I can do all of that in 15 minutes on the mobile phone on the train. And there's no excuse not to. But I think the important thing is that what you're not doing is you're not chasing useless marketing leads or you're not chasing the volume of stuff that comes up. And when you actually get to see them, you're adding some value. People want a sales-free process when the sales person, people are not adding value. If you're adding value in that chain, they will make time to talk to you. If you're turning up saying we're the cheapest, we're the fastest, we've got it in stock, they can get that from Amazon. They will engage with you, they will talk to you, but you've got to have some value to add. So it's market knowledge, it's understanding the problems, it's understanding the businesses that they're in. What I see far too often, you've touched on it, is that Salespeople are not bringing any value to the conversation. So all they are is a, an unwelcome interruption. And you see this, especially in the channel. I mean, the bloodbath that is channel management, where people phone up and say, Paul, what do you got for me this month? Nothing great. I'll speak to you next month. They only pick those calls up by accident, because if they knew, see your number and they recognize it, they'd be bouncing it straight to voicemail. So. We need to think about the customer value chain, but also the partner value chain and that experience that those people are going through and the journey that they go through before they even consider looking at your products and services. But as a vendor, if you understand the marketplace and the players in the marketplace, you should be able to identify, it doesn't matter how many, 35, 50, 100 resellers that or MSPs or VARs or whatever we want to call them in this day and age. But you should be able to identify the ones that are right for your product and service and be able to when articulate the business solution as opposed to the product and where it would fit in their portfolio and how it matches with the other products in their portfolio and then how they're going to make more money or have less support calls or, or whatever it happens to be. 
but this constant sort of ring up, we're a new AV company, we've got something marvellous, do you want to sell it, is a nonsense. It doesn't work in an environment where you know, a lot of the, the MSP community particularly have got, you know, they might have 1,500, 2,000 seats of a product already installed in customers and you've got someone ringing up saying, would you like to change this for this? Without any understanding of what's involved in taking the one out that's there and installing a new one. They've got no concept of that. It's just that we can do this a bit cheaper in the big players. Then, again, it's not positioned strategically. If you're running a channel partner, if you're doing it properly, you've got a product set that you're out promoting. And you're not closing your your eyes to other things, but it has to have a benefit. It has to have value for you, for you to take it on board and, and resell it, unless you're selling boxes. And there's nothing wrong with selling just simply selling products. I've got a client who sells products, never made as much money as he has in the last three months. He's four or five salespeople have been in the market a long time. They can source. They know where the products are. They know what the products are. They know what's in short supply. And that's their added value. Somebody phones them up. They know where, how much, when they can get it, what the, what the comparisons are, what the competitors are. And that's their added value. And that's a service in itself that is over and above going and buying it from Amazon. Is it the service that is causing him to see that growth? Or is it the fact that he happens to be selling that product? It's a combination of his service and, I mean, inevitably, you know, some of the product. But he's got an area of, I mean, he inevitably, like all of them have, he's got a sort of a specific area that looks at security. And he's picked up a couple of, strategic security product that he can engage with the clients with. And he told, I mean, he has, his salespeople have targeted accounts because I've worked with him for sort of 18 months. So they take the new products to their account base to engage with them for a bigger relationship. But strategically, he gets in and, you know, the the nature of people have been spending a bit more money, but the service that he offers is intelligent people knowledge of the market, the ability to, to buy and deliver. Any, I mean, he can deliver anywhere in the world, but his added value is that knowledge around shipping that box, whereas the majority of the people I deal with, they're service providers. So, you know, their value he's looking after and working with and doing on the sort of the day-to-day on-site support type stuff. But in terms of going out and winning those customers, they need to know who they are and that they're in the market and not just anybody. You know, get me some leads. I mean, I've worked for vendors. You go and talk to the, the majority of the channel partners and they'll say, you know, what do you want? We want leads. We want marketing fund. Right. Okay. Because I think one of the challenges here is that vendors have a tendency to think that the customer and the partner think about their product. Whereas, in fact, the reality is they don't give a damn about the product. What they're looking for is outcomes. And they want to move from where they are to where they want to get to. They've got a problem that they want to resolve. And the challenge is to get your salespeople, your partner salespeople, to think as the customer, which means that you've got to get away from thinking that it's ever about the product. You need to have salespeople with good business acumen who understand the market in which the customer operates and the environment that they're operating in, 
the challenges that they're facing, how they are measured, how they're compensated, who's looking for them to fail. And you need to have good emotional intelligence. You've got to be able to read the situation. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that far too often, I put this down to a problem in the recruitment process, because I think far too often what hiring managers have done is they've just put a warm body on a seat. And I don't think they've invested anywhere near enough time in the recruitment selection process, deselecting out the wrong candidates, selecting the right ones, making sure expectations are properly established right from the outset, making sure they're pre-onboarded, onboarded, trained, coached, held to account, planning, you know, all of this stuff. If I look at uh, my behavior, your behavior, and the behavior of top salespeople, there is a system, a structure to it. You don't just um, you know, pick up the phone, wing it, and hope that you can vomit out some product information and someone will miraculously hand over their credit card details. That just doesn't happen anymore. There's been a sea change. So again, you know, I can, I've got a long history in this, and, but in the early days of me doing it, we had sales managers that understood sales and management. And, and over time, a lot of those have now, I mean, the majority of those, as far as I'm concerned, have now retired, but you know, <laughs> they haven't been replaced because we went through a phase where it was, oh, we don't need management. The salespeople can go out and do it by themselves. It's all going to be automated and it's going to be wonderful. So they took out middle management. And we now have a, a situation where there aren't sufficiently numbers of good salespeople coming through to be good managers. And a good salesman doesn't automatically make a good manager. In fact, to some extent, they're, you know, they're sort of polar opposites. But if you've got somebody coming on board as the sales manager, you should be able to explain what your proposition is and get them targeting the specific accounts and working with them and helping them to support, to support them. So you're actually supporting them to succeed rather than in a lot of cases at the moment, it's a challenge to fail. There's a desk, there's a chair, bring me some business. If you haven't done it in three months, I'm going to fire you. And, and they, a lot of the companies haven't got the money to, to invest what is absolutely needed to, you know, to sort of move those things forward. So, I mean, all the things you say are right, but they should be handled within the, within the management structure, within the businesses and the vendors. You know, I mean, I had an argument recent, not actually, I say recently, we haven't had any events in the last seven months, have we? Uh, I had an argument with a vendor last year because I asked... They insisted on talking to me at one of the shows, and I'm going, I'm not a prospect, leave me alone. But no, no, they insisted on talking to me. So I said, so what do you do then? And she said, we sell backup solutions. I said, who do you sell to? She said, MSPs. I said, but you don't, do you? I said, you should be selling to the end users. You should understand the end users problem to be able to get the MSP on your side. No, we sell to MSPs. So MSPs buy your products and use your product. Well, no, their customers use the product. So you're selling to the customers then? Yeah, so it's the customer's money. customer or the partner's customer. Again, you know, you're, what you're touching on here is understanding not only the ecosystem in which your partners sell into, but the ecosystems that customers are building. Because you, know, you, you might have a backup solution, but that is one cog in an entire machine of moving parts which is part of their IT strategy, which is a component that underpins the business strategy. And 
I think that there are far too few salespeople out there that recognize that big picture and look at it through the user's eyes. I've interviewed a really fascinating character, a guy called Bob Mester. He wrote a book called Demand Side Sales. And it is just one of the best books I've read in the last 30 years. He is a product designer. He's got 5,000 products to his name. And he was trained by W. Edwards Deming. He was apprenticed. He went over to Japan when he was in his early career and uh, worked with Deming. So he's got that really analytical mindset. But the problem that he faced was he was producing products and he was struggling to get people to buy them. And so now what he's been able to do is create this really healthy understanding of the journey that buyers go through. Because the way he's analyzed it is they have a first thought because they have a problem and they start making space for solutions. And they go into this passive looking phase where they're learning how they might solve their problem. And then they start connecting the dots and seeing possibilities. And this is where they go into active looking. And this is where they go through the first and second false RFP phase. So gathering information, defining the specification. And then what they do is they use that process in order to make trade-offs. And they disqualify this one. They look for these features, these capabilities, And then they make their decision on the basis of all of those trade-offs and the compromises they've had to make. And then they start using the product. And it's at that point that the buying decision is made, but the sale is only complete after they've been using the product or the service for a long time. They're building the habit. But that's really when the real selling begins, because this is where an interview I did, I released it this week with a lady called Caroline Pino. She got diagnosed with cancer in her first month in her new company, decided that she wasn't going to lie down and just uh, take it. So she decided she was going to work with three or four customers and only them. And her opening line was, I'm here to help. I want to see exactly how we can help you achieve your objectives. And I'm going to do everything I possibly can. Now, bear in mind, she can only do about two hours work a day because of her energy levels with the chemo. And she's smashing out of the park. At the end of October, she was at 300% of quota. I asked her, you know, so what are you going to do with the rest of the year? Well, the year's not over. So she's looking at about 325, maybe 350% by the end of the year. She's got a couple of big deals waiting to uh, come in. But what she was doing was partnering with the customer. Now, whether you sell direct or you sell through third parties, VARs, MSPs, SIs, whatever, you need to partner with your customers. And you've got to think as the customer. You've got to work out what it is they're trying to achieve, how we can help, where we fall short. The best example I ever had of that is we tendered for an insurance company's business a long time ago. And we sat down and they were based in Swindon and they called us to their offices and they gave us a full slide presentation of what they wanted. They were very specific and it wasn't so much the products, it was the service that they required. So the installation service, the the removal service, they wanted us to stock some of their products and and so on. So, And they gave us a four-slide presentation. This is what we want. This is what we want to achieve. These are the issues that we have. Have you got any input? So we had some input into that, and we ended up with the four slides. And we went away, and we spoke to all the various departments within the business, 
and we put together a solution for them. And we we actually, what I did then was I annotated that on their four slides. So there's no RFP, there's none of all that paperwork. It was a straightforward, come back, sit down, and we went through it and we, we gave them what they asked for. Our competitors, when they went back to them, they said, that's not what you want. What you really want is all of this. And, you know, we got the business and it was a very profitable service account because they knew exactly what they wanted. They know how they wanted it managed because it's their business. And we understood that. We added our, our value as the, you know, as the suppliers of, of IT stuff and services. And we walked away with the business. I don't understand why it doesn't happen more often. The vendors try and dictate because they've only, generally speaking, they've only got one or two products that are any good to sell. The resellers are under pressure in a lot of cases from the vendors to actually do more. And so the end user client, the people who pay all of our salaries, because they're the only ones that actually pay for it and use it, are forgotten. But I think it comes from the idea that we have to sell our product as opposed to yeah. we have to serve the customer and help them solve their problems, which means if you, th- if you shift your thinking like that, then you are relevant. You deliver value every time you speak to them. They invite you in. They welcome your call, as opposed to you just trying to break through this wall of noise. And, you know, Because the, the other thing that really pisses me off is all these people who have, I mean, uh, since I changed my role from training and coaching to being a CRO, my inbox in LinkedIn has been inundated. I mean, probably 30 a day, people trying to peddle me their shit, but it's all automated stuff. And what's even more depressing is the number of people who keep trying to sell me solutions so I can uh, increase my coaching business. I don't know what's happened, but now that I'm a chief revenue officer, they're going back to three jobs past and they're using that as their uh, keyword search. And so I'm just getting flooded with all of this stuff. One guy t- uh, today asked me, I had a look at your profile, looks really interesting, would like to know whether you sell B2B or B2C. Now, clearly, he couldn't possibly have looked at my profile because it's fucking obvious I only sell B2B. I mean, everything on there. I I've see... started reporting them. Right. So if I get that, I report it as spam. And if five people report them, they, their accounts get suspended because it's automated. I'm very specific in terms of who I connect to on LinkedIn. And I've got the same going on all the time at the moment. And most of them are lead gen. And I actually wrote back to one the other day because and just said, does this actually work? I got the email on LinkedIn, then I get an email because my contact details are on LinkedIn. And then I get the one four days after because I've been too busy to read their first one. Then I get the one that says, you were obviously busy when I sent you the first one and the second one, so can we do it on this one? Then you get the fourth one that said, we understand you're really busy, but could you just put your, could you look in my diary and put a time that's convenient for me to talk to you about a product that you don't even know? And so it goes on. And I just think it's a complete and utter nonsense when, again, you know, the, the, the essence of this is if you turn that around and give these people 250 known customers, clients, prospects that are in the market that fit the profile and say to them, go and profile these people and sell to them because they're the people that use products and services like ours. You're solving a problem for them. Well, 
This then raises another really important question. Just because you have a total addressable market doesn't mean you should sell to or can sell to all of them. What you need to do is you need to know who your ideal customer is, what the qualities are that run through all of them. Now, once you've done that, then you need to do your research. And uh, in fact, I, I work with a partner of mine, Gap in the Matrix, and it's really fascinating. They're a bunch of mathematical psychologists, and they've developed this whole new form of mathematics called irrational mathematics. Your views on the world are probably fucking barking mad to me, and mine are barking mad to you. But to each of us, our views make sense. And so what they've done is they've mapped out how and why people think the way they do, because the basic premise is human beings do not understand other humans. And uh, if anyone doubts that, just look at how screwed up your relationships are at home. Your uh, husband, wife, partner, your children, your parents, your aunts, cousins, uncles. We are all sick, messed up puppies. Mark Twain said it best, paraphrasing, when you realize the whole world is mad, everything makes sense. Anyway, long story short, what these guys do is they analyze your proposition, who it should appeal to, what messaging you are sending out, and why it's missing the mark, and what it is that you need to do in order to turn those conversations live. And so a really good example of this was a a consumer brand that the CMO was convinced that they were an adventure brand. And what they realized, country by country, that there were different appetites and uh, preferences. So in Hong Kong, the brand was actually perceived by loyal customers who stopped spending as a brand that you wore to look sophisticated when you went out to restaurants in the evening with your family. And so it got away from the adventure brand, focused on that. In one quarter, increase in sales, 62 million just in that marketplace. Now, when you combine that level of precision with an account-based marketing strategy that allows you to pinpoint the individuals within an enterprise with whom your message needs to resonate so you can only target them 98.81% of all online advertising is wasted because it gets uh, one or uh, zero clicks. That's 4.2 quadrillion adverts a year are served up to people, interrupting them. Re-advertising, the conversion rate on that is 0.38%. You look at Mercedes, you decide you don't want a Mercedes, and for the next four weeks, you're plagued by adverts for Mercedes. Yeah. Now, most of that marketing budget is wasted. And then uh, you overlay, uh, overlay on top of that uh, another uh, technology um, that allows you to identify not only which, cust- uh, which of those prospects out of your 10,000 lists, who are the 273 that you are likely to resonate with, but which of your salespeople should be having the conversation with which of their buyers because they are most likely to create the connection with them. Now, that's the level of marketing and outreach accuracy we can deliver today. But these people are just out there throwing money in billions and billions of pounds every year on utterly pointless, interruptive, unwelcome marketing. And 
you've got to wake up. If you're a CMO, a CFO, you should be having apoplectic fits um, at the thought that, I mean, most of you are probably going through your budgeting process now. Ask your CMO, why the hell are we spending all this money on advertising that does not work? And when they come back and say, oh, well, you've got to be in it to win it, or whatever their lottery version of marketing excuse is, then tell them no, because there is no excuse for it in this day and age. You can deliver that level of precision. And when you deliver that level of precision, people welcome your call. They want to speak to people. And again, this over-reliance on email and electronic instead of verbal and face-to-face over Zoom or whatever, now that you can't meet people, you need to have conversations with other human beings. You've got to humanize your selling and your marketing. Because otherwise, you ain't going to make it. You're just noise. Well, I mean, the best you can hope for is a point sale in that environment. Yeah. You're not going to get the full breadth of what you're delivering because people will pick up on the one piece of it that, you know, at best they're interested in. But, you know, as I say, if you turn it around and you've actually got somebody who understands it is going out to them and adding value and adding value and building a relationship over time, then at some point, then they'll start doing business with you. But it does take a bit of time, but then you get a much deeper relationship and you make more money out of it. You've touched on something really important. I know uh, I'll, I'll ask you for your example in a minute. The other thing is you need to start thinking as a partner to your end user customer. Mm-hmm. Whether you're going through a third party like a VAR or an SI or whatever, it, it doesn't matter. You need to uh, act as if you are their partner. Partners help each other get better. They don't mind challenging each other, true partners. That means you can have stand-up fights, you can argue, you can fight, and you can end up with really constructive conflict. But the problem is that I think so many people come with a really bad scarcity mentality. They need to make uh, this quarter's number. And one of the dumbest things I hear from CROs, VPs of sales, and CEOs is, get in the business this quarter, no matter what. That indicates a monstrous deficiency in something you didn't do 12 or 16 weeks before, because the problem started when you didn't prospect back then, and your pipeline is weak today. Anyone who asks you, well, what can we do to get deals in this quarter is probably an idiot. Tell us about that example with uh, BA, because that that was a really interesting... So one of the challenges that, I guess the larger channel partners and anybody that's going after new business face is how you pay the salesman because there is this notion that you only pay a salesman if they produce any business. And you've got a situation where if you want people to go out and genuinely invest all of their time and effort in winning new customers, then that really needs to be what they focus on. So what we did was we took our top salesman off patch and we paid him, and I'm going back, 20 years and we paid him just shy of a hundred thousand pounds guarantee and his job was five target accounts and we identified them and we put him on them and obviously he was reviewed and he was managed and the activity and the progress and and all those things so he wasn't left to it by himself and in his 15th month he won british airways as an account now that at the time was a 15 million pound a year contract. 
And that was the, the base contract. And obviously, you've got all the business on top of that. Now, I know for a fact that the company is still dealing with British Airways nearly 20 years later. So that investment of £100,000 has paid back 100 times and more. But it's well, that's, having... That's annually now, isn't it? Because it was a £15 million uh, pound yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, they will have been £40, £45 a year at some point during that time because of the developments that go on. But you know, by simply biting the bullets and doing that, and he only, I mean, he got that one, but that was his job. And there was no distraction. There was no, you haven't done your target, go off and sell some bits and pieces and make your numbers up. It was a focused, planned, strategic approach. And there were others. I mean, the, one of the other bigger partners at the time, they used to pay their major accounts, their new win major accounts, they would give them, again, you know, two or three target accounts and they'd pay them a basic and then they paid them a quarterly bonus on the basis of if any of the vendors went in to talk to the senior management and told them something that was happening in the account that you were targeting that they didn't already know, you wouldn't get your bonus. So your job was to be in that account all the time and know everything that's going on, all the projects, all the people, all the players, all the movers, and they got paid, they got paid, I think, something like 70K base and £25,000 a quarter. And the, the only control was if the CEO was told and the senior management were told anything by vendors who were obviously all active within the accounts as well, that they didn't know, then you didn't get your bonus. Another really interesting example of this strategic approach is company most unless you're Paul or my age you'll never have heard of a company called Narvision and you want to read Hans Peter Beck's books going global on a shoestring and 5,600 miles from Silicon Valley and this is all about having one or three or five really key target accounts that you want to bring on board at the time Narvision was the single biggest tech acquisition that had ever happened and Microsoft absorbed them into their portfolio. But you know, th this is about thinking strategically instead of tactically. Having a growth mentality, having a partnership mentality. And you, you look at the successful companies across the board, these are ones that have that um, vision that there is something bigger out there. And they're not scrabbling around month after month for just to scrape through and hit their quota. Mm. And you touched on something which is uh, really close to my heart, which is compensation drives behavior. What you measure happens, what you don't doesn't. And so you've got to combine the job design with the hiring process. You've got to make sure that the compensation scheme drives the desired behavior. Because most comp plans, as far as I can see, drive unintended negative consequences in so many cases. I'm not saying all, but many. No, I think in, in a lot. I mean, if the thing is, the, the strategy of the pay plan has to follow the strategy of the business. If you want to go out and win new business, you've got to have a comp plan that frees people up to go out and win new business. And that may be paying for events rather than paying for for revenue. If you want account managers to go out and win more business within their accounts, they need an account plan with 
money paid for each particular type of business that they want to go out for. But step back a little bit and put some thought into how you, as you say, how you want your salespeople to behave. Because if 50% of my money is coming from the comp side of the business, and that 50% is what takes my kids on holiday or pays the bills, then I'm going to do whatever I need to do to generate that number before I do anything else. So, you know, design it and make it proper. And, and also, and you've touched on something here, I don't know whether you did it deliberately, but um, well, uh, let, let's give you the benefit of the doubt. You need to understand the individual personal motivation of the salespeople. So when you're hiring them, you can, you can coach them to that motivation. And again, I don't see a lot of that happening. You know, only 4% of or 6% of managers in sales globally are fit for purpose. Very few have a regular coaching cadence. Very few coach anywhere near enough. And what they confuse with coaching is actually either polishing up the armor and saying, look at the way a real salesperson does it, Sonny, or they tell. That is not coaching. In the good old days, and I think you benefited from this more than I did, because I remember my first 17 years of sales, I only had one coaching session, one ride-along in my entire career. And that, that was a real handicap. It was only afterwards when I was coaching other people and I had access to a wealth of great sales coaches did my sales performance really improve? But if I'd had that in my early 20s when I first got into sales, I know that my career trajectory would have been massively different. Mm. Now, personally, those 17 years of constant failure, beating my head against the wall, complaining about the economy, our marketing, our pricing, our management, the competition, our products, taught me quite a lot of scar tissue or gave me a lot of scar tissue. But I really wish, I mean, I have two regrets in life. One that I didn't actually uh, implement the CDs from a guy called Guru Ganesha Halsa five months before. And the fact that I didn't get learn how to take coaching earlier. Now, if you are a salesperson, ask for help. There is no shame in it. Go out and find people who will mentor you, coach you, train you. I had a very dissatisfying conversation with somebody uh, recently when I suggested that as part of our recruitment process, they reach out to people that we were going to prospect and ask those people in job titles that we were going to sell to, to be their mentor. And actually, that's a fantastic strategy. I've uh, taught lots of people this. And they go out and they've got about a dozen different mentors who can all help them understand what it's like to be the customer. Now, that's gold. When I first started... I was an account manager for Jaguar Cars and I worked for SCC and SCC had recently picked up the Jaguar Cars account and I went as an account manager and I'd been there for six, seven months and I went to the senior purchaser at Jaguar and said, could you give me an indication of some textbooks or something to read about purchasing? And he looked at me like I'd kind of arrived from another planet and he said, what do you want that for? And I said, well, from what I can see, Purchasing is pretty much the same as sales, but from a, a different perspective. And it would be useful for me to understand the processes and the thought processes that you go through to be able to sort of help. But I did that, just it was my idea. And all throughout, you know, I used to go out and sit down with people and say, Why have you done this? Or why are you doing this? And the, I had an old 
an old boy at Massey Ferguson Tractors who took a shining to me because I was I was always doing and helping him out. And I could always phone him up and I'd say, so-and-so, I've just spoken to an account and they've said this, this and this, and I don't really understand it. And he would go through it and he'd explain it and give me his view from his perspective. Absolutely. So you know, being able to ask, it should be second nature. And I saw your post on LinkedIn about everybody complaining about everything about an hour ago. But <laughs> the thing that attracted me to be in sales is I am largely in control of my own destiny. Yeah. If I can earn as much as I want, I can work as hard as I want within the framework that I should be provided and the guidance that I'm given in terms of what they want me to do, I can make it work and yeah, I can input to the company. I don't want to stand on the sidelines tub thumping and telling them that they've got all sorts of problems because when it comes down to it, my job is to take that to the market and work with people and coerce them, you know, convince them, whatever the words are, to actually start dealing with the business. And there is a fabulous book that every salesperson who is serious about accelerating their career needs to read, which is called Customer-Centered Selling by Tom Williams. And uh, I've got a couple of podcasts. I'll put those links um, when we uh, publish this in the blurb. And a couple of people that you want to follow, Jill Robbins from a company called Business Fierce, 25, 30 years in procurement. She now works with sales teams, teaching them how to partner with procurement. Tom Williams, you absolutely have to look at him, Strategic Dynamics, and Bob Mester. These guys have really got this down pat. The whole concept of partnering with procurement is a subject that for most salespeople and most sales leadership is utterly alien. But the reality is, if you are smart about this, procurement will be a wonderful source of ongoing lifetime business for you if you treat them like Paul did. I mean, at the end of the day, they need you as much as you need them. Absolutely. It's their job. One of the things that I always had an issue with with the sales team was, well, so-and-so won't speak to me. So it's their job. Their job is to get best solution value for their customer. They can't do that unless they talk to a range of people. You are one of that range of people. Well, Tom Williams has a really interesting model. So if you draw quadrants and down the left-hand side, you have financial risk. And at the bottom, that axis is supply risk. If you are low financial risk and low supply risk, i.e. there are lots of vendors, you're a commodity, okay, you'll get treated like a commodity and it's all about price, okay? If you are high financial risk, but you are low supply risk, there's lots of suppliers, but the cost is high, uh, you will inevitably end up in a bid situation. If you are low financial risk, but high supply risk, i.e. there is there's a limited supply of vendors. You might have some leverage in terms of your price, but if you are high financial risk and high supply risk, that's where you can get premium. Now, how do you make yourself valuable? How do you make sure that you understand? A lot of people sell, let's say, cybersecurity. Now, cybersecurity is a commodity now. Yeah, there is high financial risk, so you're probably going to end up in a bid situation. But if you don't understand how what you do improves user experience, eliminates multiple threats, 
across the business. If you don't understand how you are going to enable senior people. So uh, I'm working with a uh, a password-free cyber vendor. And what we've realized is that in law firms, for example, where they've invested in SAP or big enterprise solutions, because it takes so long to try and navigate, particularly on mobile, they're now bypassing all of the security and they're using native email servers, which are massively vulnerable. And as a result, you know, these are, um, you know, you, you've got uh, senior partners working on, I don't know, tax or high net worth individuals uh, who are bypassing all the security. That's just a crisis waiting to happen. Now, if you can eliminate all of that friction so these people don't have that problem, then miraculously, you now bring value to the people who, whose money it is you're going to spend and you move from the commodity quadrant to the value quadrant. You have to think hard. You've got to really focus your attention on thinking as the customer. What's the end user experience like? What can we do? How many different departments can we positively impact? And procurement is getting all these problems lobbed over the fence at them. And if you partner with them and you prime them with, I don't, you're probably not experiencing these problems yet, but when you do, give me a call and you prime them so that you sow those seeds. And when those problems start happening and they see that pattern, they pick up the phone and they say, Paul, you know that conversation we had six months ago? Well, now is the time we need to talk. I had a situation and, it, and it's one of these, the, the, the point at which you see the world from a different from a different perspective. We were asked to do a, essentially a sort of an exhibition of laptops for um, British American tobacco, as it happens. But And they wanted to provide all their senior managers with portable computing, so laptop. And we put a load of effort and we got, so it was a bit of a beauty show and we got Tosh there and we got various sort of vendors there. And then over the lunch two hours, the senior managers were told to come down, have a look at them, see what's what. So we've got high-powered laptops. We've got this, that, and the next thing. Every single manager came down and said, can I get it in my case? The what? And the, the only driving factor of picking that laptop was whether or not it meant they had to carry another bag onto the aeroplane. Absolutely. And, and then they say, well, we do a bit of spreadsheet, we do a bit of email and a bit of Word. But the most important thing to me yeah. is that I can put it in my bag and I don't have to carry another bag onto an aeroplane. And you leave and you think all this technology and all these millions and dollars of technology that are actually going into the development <laughs> of these things and all they want is to put it in their existing bag. I, I shall be using that story. Paul, thank you. This has been great. And, uh, as ever, enjoyable. Uh, and it's lovely to find some grizzled old miserable <laughs> veteran who has similar views. How can people get hold of you? My email is paul at uk, Or if you look for Paul Lloyd on LinkedIn, I'm pretty confident I come up in the top five, normally the top one. And then my contact details are on that in terms of phone numbers and the like. Excellent. Paul Lloyd, thank you. Thank you. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this grumbling old rant from our soapbox, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And please get in touch if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be. 
My email is marcus at laughs-last.com. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.